Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. These are my favorite types of podcasts that I get a chance to do because we're going to take this moment where you're looking at a plant at a garden center online and you're like, where did this plant come from? Yeah, people, they came from somewhere. There's this whole process that goes behind a plant coming from a breeder, a grower, and getting it to you at a garden center or buying it online. So one of the absolute best places in the entire world for this is Walter's Gardens. And joining me this week is Laura Robles from Walter's Gardens. And and Laura, I think one of the components of our conversation that hopefully we can shed some light on for people is within the, the world of nursery and horticulture, Walter's Gardens is just like, you know, super famous, you know, super famous, rock star famous, Laura. But for the for the home gardener, it's probably maybe a new name for them. Give us a little bit of the the brief backstory of Walters Gardens. Sure. Um, so Walters Gardens was founded in 1946 by Dennis Walters. Uh, now we're moving into third generation. So he was the founder um, on our way into third generation Walters. Uh, but we started out, um, the, our location here right next to Lake Michigan gives us kind of a unique situation where we are able to be one of the largest bare root providers in the United States. Um, the climate from the lakeshore, we have a little bit more moderate climate right here. And then the sandy uh, soils that we have enable us to grow um, really great quality bare root. So we do have about 1,500 acres of field production that we can use for that. Uh, we're also a perennial young plant provider. So we grow, uh, we have a little over half a million square feet of greenhouse um, under coverage and we grow plugs. Um, so smaller inputs that we ship out to greenhouses around the country um, and into Canada as well for them to finish into a larger container uh, that then gets sold on to the consumer. Um, we also have a tissue culture lab. So that was started here in 1976 and that puts us again in kind of a unique position There's not a lot of different greenhouses around the country that have a tissue culture lab uh, right on site there. So we that helps us to um, kind of ramp up our own production on some of our new varieties that we're bringing to market. Uh, And then we do work with some other folks as well um, who kind of utilize our tissue culture lab. And then the other thing that's unique about Proven Winners, or I'm sorry, the other thing that's unique about Walter's Gardens is that about 10 years ago, this is actually the 10th anniversary, we partnered with Proven Winners. Um, so the partnership works in that we provide the um, the breeding, the genetics for the perennial program. Uh, Hans Hansen is our lead breeder here, and he and his team, um, we we work with uh, Proven Winners closely to make selections on what's going to go into their program, and the majority of the perennials in their program do come from Hans and his team here uh, at Walters Garden. So, um we're really, um, like you said, we're quite well known in the perennial industry, um, and we try to stay on the cutting edge of, of breeding and also just of, you know, innovative production techniques to try and get uh, the best quality young plants and bare root out to our grower customers. One of the first compliments I'm going to give you, Laura, and the whole team there, and when Laura shares with you they do bare root perennials. They're incredible quality bare root perennials, you know, n- not to, 
disparage or put too much of a shining light, Laura, on the world of bare roots, but not all are created equal. Right, exactly. And, (laughs) you know, one of the, I was joking with Laura right before we started recording that I was uh, outside planting uh, one of the, I go clematis, Laura, because, you know, I'm I'm European that way. Uh, Stand by me, clematis, I was planting. And let me tell you, folks, the root mass on this bare root perennial was enormous just fantastic do you when you work with you know uh, greenhouse growers your partners and people like proven winners when you develop that program clearly that reputation for quality has to be like you know paramount on people's minds when they partner with walter's gardens yeah yeah um do do you do you do you think I mean is that something that clearly you know the business has been around as you told us for so long that like that there's that balance right between the production side of it introductions and trialing and those things but you know that's a lot of pressure too like I mean how does the team there sort of from a mindset approach that making sure that you live up to those quality standards Um well I think it's just something that we keep in mind throughout every aspect of the business. Um, I mean, I am in charge of the trials department, but not only do trials happen in my department, there's folks across the company who do trialing um, to make sure that we're, you know, every single stage, every single department is putting out the best possible quality. So from our folks in the tissue culture lab, um, they're doing trials. Our folks out in the field do trials on the field material. Um, Our growing team does trials at all different stages of the young plant production. So whether it's, you know, right off the get-go when the plants go into um, the initial stage, what we call acclimation, where we're trying to get roots on them, um, all the way up through holding them um, to be prepared for shipping, through cold treatment. I mean, at all stages, we're looking at new products, looking at new methods, um, trying to just give the best possible quality. And then the same thing goes when we're making selections um, on on our genetics. You know, we we don't just randomly select things or or do it lightheartedly. I mean, there's a whole team of people who are looking at the material. Um, any new variety that goes into our catalog or into the Proven Winners program has typically been looked at for at least four years in our field. So we uh, want to make sure that the hardiness, um, you know, the zone hardiness is known. Um, we look for it for disease over those few years and make sure because not in, in any given year, you may or may not encounter disease. Things like, you know, powdery mildews. Um, some summers, depending on the weather, you may not get it at all. But we want to know, we want to see that span of different weather types to make sure that um, the varieties that we're introducing are high quality, um, as good disease resistance as possible. We want to know the hardiness zones. We want to know their overall performance. So. Um, all this trialing and all these years of evaluation uh, really go into, I think, making our quality what it is. Let's pick on something like Baptisia for a second. Mm-hmm. There's a plant, and what I'm curious is when the team gets together, yourself and Hans and the field production team, when you look at a plant like that, even before we maybe go into the breeding stage of it, are we looking at it and saying, hey, here's a plant that we all sort of think is is cool and interesting and has garden merit, but what's out there on the market is maybe a little lean on flowers, a little heavy on foliage, 
maybe it's a little bit too big. It's maybe not as compact as we would like it. Do you sort of approach it that way, you know, where you're trying to identify some plants that everybody thinks are interesting and then almost reverse engineering it, sort of saying, okay, like what are the problems with it today? And do we think there's potential to to get that through breeding and through production and trial observation to maybe where we think it could be eventually? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's definitely things that we kind of key in on or, or focus on um, trying to get in the breeding program. And I mean, sometimes, you know, depending on what it is that we're trying to do, sometimes it may take hands and his team uh, quite some time. It really depends on how easy it is to, to breed what we're asking him to breed. Um, an example would be like um, a pure white hibiscus flower on a, on a good habit plant. Um, I know it's something that um, we're working towards. Um, some examples that we have already put out there um, would be like spigelia. We, we just introduced this new plant uh, last year. So it's, it's new to retail this season right now um, called spigelia little redhead. And this is actually a native perennial um, and the problem so far with Spigelia was that it was only offered by seed and really the um, availability was not very good. So this wasn't necessarily a breeding thing. It was more in terms of um, a production thing. But this is a selection that is a little bit more compact, a little bit nicer than the original native species. But then the main thing is that we are propagating it vegetatively from cuttings. Um, to be able to offer a uniform crop and have good availability on it. And then we've also put it out into our fields um, and are offering bare root. So um, that's one thing where we, we looked at a plant and we said, this is a really cool plant. Um, you know, it'd be great to be able to offer this, but we need to work on it from the standpoint of production. Um, so that's one example. Um, more of a breeding example would be... Um, Phlox paniculata and, and mildew issues. So Phlox paniculata is a great garden plant. A lot of people love it. I mean, beautiful flowers, great fragrance. Um, but one problem with it is that a lot of them do get powdery mildew. Um, so that's something that Hans and his team have been working hard on, um, is breeding more resistance to that into the Phlox paniculata. Um, so we do have some, some Phlox paniculata coming up that, um, are just nice, clean plants. We've again, we, this is something that we've looked at year after year for several years, out in our fields and out in our trial beds here on site at Walters, and um, and we're really excited about um, about this introduction. So, you mentioned something that I'm going to take a chance to pet peeve on a little bit, Laura. Oh, okay. And everybody knows who everybody who knows who listens to the podcast, I shoot everybody straight. We're in full transparency mode. Okay. The lane that I'm in, we have a lot of people that are are new to the world of plants, I would say. You know, they're like small scale flower grower or, you know, even for home gardeners, I think this is true. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned tissue culture versus seed production. Mm -hmm. And one of the major things that I, I see it is a learning curve for a lot of folks that are new to plants is they're not familiar with the fact that seed production opens up huge variability yeah. uh, and color reproduction, a lot of things. You know, genetics people are not the phrase that's often used is true to seed. Mm -hmm. So that plant is not going to replicate itself genetically through its seeds. Mm -hmm. Could you take a second and maybe describe like why that's so important on your side, you know, that you 
want to make sure that, you know, be it an echinacea, be it a spigella, like you mentioned, that, you know, the same genetic attributes are being carried across. So the plant can be consistent, the performance can be the same, the flower is the same, and how not every plant does that from seed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, exactly kind of what you just said, the reason that we um, do offer plant material that's either started from tissue culture or even just vegetatively where you're doing it from cuttings, um, that also is is basically cloning the plant and you do get that same true to type um, flowering and performance and all of that. And that's exactly why we do it is because we've spent all the time, our reading team has spent all the time coming up with these new varieties that have traits that we feel are better or are noteworthy. Um, so we want to make sure that the consumers are able to get that exact plant. We don't want to do it, um, you know, where there's this chance that something might not be what we say it is. Um, and yeah, exactly. With seed, um, you just don't always get that. I mean, there is... Um, there's an example in the Proof Winners line of a variety that we do from seed. It's an echinacea, and it's actually it's a great variety. I mean, some of what's neat about it is the variability that you get from seed. You get some color variation. You get some habit um, variation. Um, but, yeah, if we have a plant that we really have selected for and put a lot of emphasis on certain traits, we want to be sure that those traits are going are gonna to be there. So that's why we do them um, vegetatively or from tissue culture. Some plants also just don't um, don't do well being vegetatively propagated, um, only from cuttings, which is why we do certain things only from tissue culture. So, like hostas is an example of that. Um, I mean, obviously you can divide hostas, but you can't really do hostas vegetatively from cuttings. So, when we have new varieties, that's why we do them from tissue culture. There is one of, I think, the universal things for yourself and for the team there that I always joke with my British friends that the United States is so much more challenging because of the size Mm -hmm. and the climate. And it's so different, right? You couldn't have a more different climate than, you know, Southern Georgia versus Northwestern Minnesota. You know, it's like, (laughs) you know, we're not seeing the extremity in Europe as you know you do here. How do you guys approach that? You know, cuz that's something that clearly not only zonal for cold hardiness, but just some of the challenges in those varying climates. Yeah. Um so I mean one of the things that we do, uh not only do we try do trials here on site, um but we also do have a network of folks that we send trials out to um so that we can get some of this data back from them who are um, living or growing in different climates. So we do work with um, a whole network of our grower customers um, because not only for garden performance, also for container, you know, growing performance is um, highly influenced by the climate, the environment, um, the photo period, the amount of light in any given area. Um, but then same thing with garden performance. We do send trials out to a number of different uh, botanical gardens and university trial sites in different places throughout the country. And we've tried to select ones that are representative of differing climates so that we can get as much information back as possible on how the varieties do in different areas. And then we know that, you know, some of the varieties that we carry aren't necessarily for all areas, and we're not trying to claim them to be so. Um, uh, You know, an example of that might be Nefofia. Nefofia is a great plant for some of the more southern 
uh, markets, some of the more Western markets. We do have a new series that we um, came out with uh, a year ago, and they are hardy down to zone 5B. Um, but again, that's obviously that's excluding you know folks in northern Minnesota. They're not going to be growing these. So um, we're not trying to say that all of our plants are for all areas, but we do try and learn as much about them as possible so that we know which areas each one is best for. Let's pick on something like Hemerocalus daylilies for a second, you know, because that's something that you guys offer a lot of in uh, bare root production. The, when you go to trial a new introduction of something like a, a daylily, there's so many of them, right, on the market. It's been a plant that's had, you know, a pretty decent collector following uh, amongst enthusiasts. What do you look for? Are there certain things, you know, in a group like that that already have so many plants on the market? What would be some things that would go through your mind, like as you trial one of the potential new introductions? Yeah, so um, I'm not heavily involved in the selection on daylilies, but I do know um, that some of the traits that are selected for are obviously unique colors, um, unique textures. So like pie crust edges um, are very popular. Um, anything that kind of sets them apart, different watermarks on the flowers. Um, also, the characteristic of being tetraploid um, is often something that we look for, um, which basically leads to um, thicker substance flowers, thicker substance flower scapes uh, that hold up better. Um, trying to think of other qualities that we would um, look at. Fragrance in, in daylilies is often something that, you know, if you have a few different varieties that are similar and, and one is fragrant, uh, that one, you know, may be more sought after. Um, so things like that are, are some of the traits that are being looked at in the, in the daylily breeding. Well, and then we had corresponded through email. You know, there's something like Brunera that's sort of a, an under-the-radar plant still you know mm -hmm. even though it's been out there in gardens obviously for a long time and i think one of the categories that so many people are faced with is like this sort of dappled light shady kind of situations so something like brunera like what are you looking for in that trialing kind of sense like i'm looking for bigger foliage you know better performance late into the year throughout the year sort of where do you go with that yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think the, the Brunera that we had talked about is one called Jack of Diamonds. Um, and it's one of my favorite of our new introductions. Um, that one is in the Proven Winners program. And it's basically a an upgrade to Jack Frost, if you will. So Jack Frost came out of our breeding program here um, many, many years ago. Um, and Jack of Diamonds does have larger foliage. It, it gets up to 9 to 10 inch diameter foliage. Uh, at maturity, um, the foliage has kind of a unique look. It kind of curls in on itself. Um, we call it an escargot effect so that the leaves almost look rounded when they're mature. Um, the, the venation on them is really pretty. Um, and then one of the big things, um, it, it performs really well in a container. So that's obviously one of the things that we look at in our trials is not just garden performance, uh, but also how it's going to grow for our end customers. Um, and then it has good resistance to bacterial leaf spot, which is something that can negatively affect Brunera. Um, and then it also holds up really well through heat and humidity. So Jack Frost and some of the older genetics, um, as the season progresses, especially in areas that do get hotter and more humid during the summer, um, once you hit those kind of 
um, temperatures and humidity levels, they just kind of melt down. And we've seen Jack of Diamonds to hold up really, really well. Um, it's held up here really well. Um, but then I've also seen it in places like West Chicago, where it is much more um, humid and much hotter during the summer than we are here in West Michigan. And I've seen it hold up all summer long and on in into the fall there. So um, I do feel like that's just a great new shade introduction that um, maybe you'll bring Brunera more to, you know, the forefront of people's minds when they think about shade gardening. Well, and walk me through this, because this is something that I've tried. I was actually just sharing today with folks that there's also this balance between like great plant that maybe has these great attributes, but maybe when it goes into field production, it just doesn't size up quick enough. When do you guys sort of have that balance in trialing plants? You know, it's a great plant, but man, it's just weak in production. Do you have those moments where you go, oh, I wish it was better in production or how do you balance it? Or are there some that you guys have made a commitment to that you say, hey, we think the attributes and the merit of this plant are so valuable that we're going to figure it out? Um, it depends a little bit. There, There's definitely been instances like that. And in some cases, we're able to work through production. Um, with all of that, of course, you have to look at cost and whether the you know extra steps or extra measures that you have to take to produce a plant that's maybe a little bit more tricky, whether that offweighs or offsets the, the additional cost. Um, but in the cases where it does, um, I mean, there are certain things that we grow for a longer time period out in the field. Um, a lot of our field crops we plant in the spring and we actually harvest them later that same year in the fall. Um, but there are things that we keep in the field for a year and a half or two years um, in order to get the, the biggest root system, the most eyes, the best quality. Um, and same thing in greenhouse production. I mean, there are certain things that are a little bit trickier to produce. And if we feel like it's an item that we still want to carry and the cost is, um, you know, the return on investment of, of going to these extra measures is worth it, then, yeah, we'll we'll do what it takes. Uh, but then there's other instances where we've had things and we really liked them. We liked them in the trials. Um, but then production-wise, it just wasn't going to happen. And, and that's where we just make the decision, you know, this, we can't move forward with it. So there's both both ways happen. There's a plant that comes to mind for me that, you know, I think when you also like Monarda is something that historically has always sort of had a lot of appeal, you know, pollinator appeal, things like that. But some of the older varieties that were out there, I think you would maybe categorize as maybe a little loose, maybe a little wild. Is that like a group of plants that you guys would approach and be like, okay, we know it's out there in the market, but maybe not in the way that we think it could be. And then how do you convince like partners that, hey, listen, this is a plant. I know people know, you know, bee balm is out there, but here's what we think makes it this variety exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And Monarda is an example of one that Hans and his team have done a lot of work with. Um, we have a few different series um, that he and his team have put a lot of um, background genetics into that give them better resistance to mildew, give them a better habit. Um, we have differing heights. You know, some are better for the front of the border, some are better for the back of the border. And um, we do encounter that where our customers or our customers' customers, um, oftentimes landscapers are different, you know, 
uh, retailers um, kind of get hung up or stuck on a variety that is well known that they've been doing for a long time and they're, you know, they think it works, you know, why fix what's not broken. Um, but when we, when we feel like we have things that are better, um, what we like to do is basically get it into their hands. So we will send out trials to them um, free of charge so that they can, you know, take a look at these new varieties. And of course, we talk to them about what the traits are to look for. But then um, a lot of times once they see it, you know, grown side by side with what they've been doing, the proof is kind of in the pudding. And, and a lot of times we can get them to switch over. Um, and then the whole landscaping thing is, you know, another side of that where, I mean, I get it why landscapers want to use some of the same varieties because they do only have so much time to work on designs and stuff like that. So um, we've really put a big focus over the last couple of years on um, on putting together some material on which varieties we feel like would be, you know, good replacements for some of those um, kind of longstanding landscape plants um, and sending out material to folks to to try on their own. So that's kind of how we approach that. Let me ask you a tough one, Laura, on that subject, because I'm someone super active on social media, very vocal on a lot of subjects, but I'm, I'm still really surprised when I interact with, you know, gardeners and consumers, how little awareness there is on some of these differences you just mentioned on why there are cultivated varieties that, you know, within a genus, you have all these different species which have different traits. And then on top of that, you add in cultivated varieties that have been bred for specific traits. You know, we could pick on Minarda, we could pick on Nepeta, that the end gardener, I still don't get a real sense that they know that. That when people talk about plants, we're still sort of talking about them in these sweeping generalities. Mm -hmm. Hydrangea, cat mint, and we're just blanket talking them. And yet we're talking about groups of plants in many cases, you know, hydrangea is the easy one to pick on, you know, that the, the old, one of the most common questions I get on the plant is when to prune it and how to prune it. Sure. Well, the difference between species is what would tell you the answer to that. Mm -hmm. And then cultivated variety on top of it. D does that trickle down to you at all still? Are you surprised at that? Does that say as a, a, the people behind the scenes with plants and as an industry that we've still got a ways to go on educating? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, still something industry-wide that we need to focus on. Um, and I'm reminded of it, um, you know, more often when I, when I speak in front of consumers, um, often I'm speaking in front of other industry folks and um, you know, majority of them kind of understand. Um, so when I do um, a presentation or, or some sort of event with homeowners or with home gardeners, um, I really have to think about that as I'm putting my material together because, because um, yeah, there is um, just a lack of, of, I think, communication on the part of the industry um, towards consumers. And I think it's something that we're working on here at Walters Gardens. Um, we actually have a um, a website that's geared towards consumers that's not geared towards the industry. It's perennialresource.com. Um, and we do try to do a lot of promotion in that regards. Um, Proven Winners um, is a brand that is focused on, on, you know, putting out the best varieties for the end consumer and all of their um, marketing is, is kind of geared towards homeowners and home gardeners. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of work that's being done, but yeah, absolutely. I think still more needs to be done to, um, to make sure that consumers know, like, why is this plant better or what's new about this plant or, or is this plant even new? I mean, that's one thing that we see where sometimes garden centers, um, aren't even, you know, labeling or, or displaying new varieties as new. Um, and how is, how is a person there shopping for plants even to know, um, if we don't provide some better educational material or, or, you know, point of purchase marketing type stuff. So yeah, that's something that, um, I think we still have some work to do on as an industry. Well, let, let's pick on Nepeta because I think that's a good one for people and I, I want, you're going to do it, Laura, no pressure. No pressure at all in this question. Okay? okay. This is your this is yours. Okay. So Nepeta is something that probably the oldest variety that is available is probably Walker's Low, yeah. which has been in the on the market for quite a while. But I know the team there has produced a lot of newer introductions. What would separate the new introductions? You know, I walk into a garden center, I see Nepeta, Walker's Low. But then maybe I see, you know, I like the names, by the way, cat's pajamas, cat's Mm -hmm. meow. Mm -hmm. Like I see them. What would separate them? How would I use them different? You know, why would I I want these newer introductions opposed to the older one? Yeah. Um, So let's pick on cat's pajamas. That's um, our newer one, our newer introduction of Nepeta. And what sets it off from other Nepeta um, is a couple things. Uh, one, a lot of times with Nepeta, as the season progresses, you get kind of a bird's nest effect where the center, um, or the plant kind of falls over, the center kind of looks open and bare. It's just not appealing anymore. Um, this is often when, you know, gardeners, if they have time, they go in and and cut the plant, shear it to try to rejuvenate some of that center growth, but not everybody wants to do that or has that time. Uh, so cat's pajamas is one that really... Um, holds up a lot better. It doesn't fall open like that. Um, it's also a little bit more compact variety, so it's a good plant to use, um, you know, at the front of the border where it's highly visible, um, a little bit smaller than plants like Walker's Low. Um, and then another aspect of that, um, of the newer breeding, is that uh, we select for plants that have flower coverage from bottom to top. So rather than some of the older varieties that may um, just have flowers at the very top of the plant, Cat's pajamas is one that has them all up and down the stems. Um, so when it's flowering out in the garden, it just really is eye-catching, um, really makes a big color block. Um, and then it also has uh, some darker calyxes that kind of offset that color of the flower well and keep it looking, um, you know, interesting for a longer time period. So I think those are some of the main um, traits that, that really set um, some of our Nepeta breeding off. Well, and that's one of those that I can tell you folks, and this is something we've we've talked about recently with like hellebores and some other varieties, you know, the breeding work is so important. Like some of these plants, folks, I can tell you, they've come a long way (laughs) in what they're doing and the, the way the plant performs, like Laura just shared, you know, there are, there are some plants that either just as a species or some of the earlier introductions the varieties that have been introduced since are really different, like really worth the time different. If you would look at, you know, a straight Helleborus orientalis seedling, and I'll, you know, give you guys again a little bit of a plug here versus some of the Helleborus out of like the wedding series, like night and day. Yeah. Night and day plants. 
and it's not it's not all things created equal you know it's not not every car is the same kids that's what we're getting at here you know these names and the breeding that go into these plants are really vitally important for you to have a better experience with them and that's what everybody wants people like Laura and I and the whole team over there we're all plant geeks people we want you to garden more that's the bottom line <laughs> we want you to enjoy Absolutely. what you have out there in the garden there, there's no kinds of weird you know sales pitch on our parts at least so let's I wanted to take a plant and I think there's not a better one Laura because I was actually just this week uh one week ago as we record this uh hands actually did a webcast about mangaves okay and some of you out there are like a what gave (laughs) so mangaves are a uh a hybrid cross between mangave between agaves and manfreda or manfreda depending upon where you're from in the world and i guess what i'm curious of laura is if you can give us a little bit of the behind the scenes of who there was like this is a good idea. I know there was one of uh, the collector nurseries down at Texas who had the first hybrid of uh-huh. it that they just randomly discovered in a seed uh, selection. But when did it, it pop up on the radar for the team there and for yourself? Like, boy, this could be something that's interesting. Yeah, um, I think Hans really brought that um, kind of to the attention of Walters. I think it's something that um, he and Tony Avent. Uh, who the two of them are are really good close friends, um, had both been working on a little bit. And then Hans really, um, you know, introduced it to Walters, kind of took it by the horns here and has put a lot of time and effort into coming up with some great varieties um, that we have uh, already brought several to market and have several more that he's still working on behind the scenes that will be coming out in the future. Um, so yeah, the, the cross is like you said, um, between the agave and the manfreda and then the resulting plants, um, there's several things about them that make it such a great plant. One is that, um, from a growing perspective on, you know, the production side, um, it's a much faster plant to finish and be able to bring to market, um, than an agave is. So agaves are quite slow. Um, we can finish mangaves much more quickly. Um, you can finish a quart in about 10 to 15 weeks, and, and larger sizes obviously take a little bit longer, but they're still um, half the time or even faster than what it takes to finish an agave. Um, and then you also get kind of some of the structural elements of the agave, um, but some of the unique colors and speckling from the Manfreda side. Um, and then another thing that you get from the cross is that. Um, some of the spininess that you get from an agave is kind of mellowed down. Um, so you still have some spines on some of the mangave, depending on how much agave parentage they have, but they're not usually as as spiny or sharp as the you know straight agave are. Um, so I think Hans um, was one of the one of the breeders who recognized all these great traits, um, and he's come up with this just awesome assortment of different shapes and textures and colors and sizes um and they are great as container elements um they've started to gain a lot of popularity as you know these really striking um landscape elements and and containers in the north or then of course um further south where they're hardy um straight into the landscape 
Um, the other thing that's neat about them is that they can, you know, up in the north, they can be brought in and overwintered as a house plant. Um, they do quite well doing that. So um, it's really just something that's kind of changed um, the, you know, the succulent look, the tropical look, the houseplant type of look um, of, of plants. So it's it's just something that's brand new and, and brings some different color and texture variation into that area. So when Hans is like, hey, Laura, I've got this cool new thing called a mangave. When it heads to you in trialing, like, how are you approaching it? You know, what what are sort of the things you're looking for? Um, you know, because I'll, I'll be kind, like sometimes breeding, you know, and breeders, they'll throw some stuff at you, Laura, that you're like, what? You know, is this, is this a, you know, where are we going with this? Did you see it right at the beginning of how cool it could be? And then once you start trialing it, what are you looking for? Like, what are the, the traits or the, the habit that we're sort of judging the plant on? Yeah. Um, so in my department, the main thing that we're looking at is actually from a um, container performance side. So um, Hans's team um, some of his staff are responsible for um, putting his material out into the garden, out into like linear bed trials. Um, and then we have other folks who collect data on their performance out there. But then me and my team are taking the plant material and putting it into quarts or putting it into gallons or other typical sizes that our customers would use. And so really what we're looking at is performance from a grower perspective. So is this a plant that can be produced in a, you know, um, in a time frame that's reasonable for a grower? Um, does it grow well in a container? Some things just don't. Some things could be great out in the garden and then they just do not grow well in a container, which is going to be, you know, there's no point in bringing that kind of a plant to market because if we can't sell inputs to our customers who then will finish them to be able to sell to the homeowner, there's no point. Um, so we're, we're definitely looking at it from that regard. Um, so habit, um, uniformity, timing to finish, timing to flower, disease resistance, um, all of these things and, um, and, and more things too. Could are you what take we're a second at. and maybe, could you take a second and maybe walk us through that? Because I think that's really insightful for folks that sometimes they don't, that, you know, if you're on the gardening side of it as a consumer, you may not know that. You know, for a grower, like what you're, the phrases you're using, like finishing, mm -hmm. that, you know, there's some plants, uh, let, let's pick on something, um, anemone eupahensis, like some of the the Japanese woodland anemones, mm -hmm. that, you know, some of them just didn't look great, maybe, Laura. You know, the older introductions, you know, mm -hmm. they, they just didn't finish really well, or maybe they finished slowly. Um could you sort of explain that to people that, you know, when customers on your side of it are buying in like a, a tray of a 72 or a 20 or a, a grade one bare root perennial, that they're needing it to be able to get up to a size and display the characteristic, be that flower or foliage or whatever, that they want it to. Could you sort of walk us through those steps a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. I mean, we, we do have a wide range of customers and it depends a little bit on them and their type of business. Um, but basically for all of them, you know, the faster crop time, um, 
of something that we send to them, the better. Um, a lot of them are smaller independent garden centers, and they may not be open all year round. Um, and they really need something that they can count on to get some input material in the spring, pot it up into a gallon container or whatever size they're growing in, and be able to count on it, um, filling out the pot relatively quickly, rooting in all the way, um, and coming into flower so that they can sell it and not end up at the end of the season with a bunch of, um, you know, green plant material after, say, Memorial Day when less folks are going to be at the garden center shopping. Um, and then they end up just sitting on a bunch of material that they either have to um, mark down or get rid of or sit on over the winter and hope to sell the next year. Um, so we really try to have things that will work well for our, our customers from this, you know, from that standpoint. Um, and even some of the larger growers, um, you know, some of them may be um, more able to carry stuff over, but still nobody, nobody really wants to do that if they don't have to. Um, and if they're shipping on to another, say they're doing the growing and then they ship it on to a retail center to sell. I mean, same thing. They want to be able to have a plant that they're confident that they can get it up to the point where um, their independent garden center customer is willing to accept that material as something that they can then sell. Um, so, yeah, like I said, it, it depends a little bit. Um, some of our customers are set up more to um, take in small inputs like a 72-count plug in the fall or the late summer and grow it through the winter um, and sell it the next spring. And others are really set up where they're just not open that time of year. And they're really only um, able to take in inputs the same spring and sell them. Um, so we need to make sure that we know as much as possible about container performance and about um, how to help our customers schedule their crops and, you know, know how to how to um, grow it the best they can. So that's what really goes into our container trialing. So when you look at the mangaves, you're judging it a little bit were when you started trialing them. Are you comparing that maybe to like in the back of your mind or are you actually even physically trialing it? against something like maybe the existing agaves that are on the market, trying to say, okay, uh, when one of our customers buys this in, you know, the typical agave is taking X weeks or months to finish versus some of the mangave introductions that we're putting out are finishing in a fourth of that time. Is that sort of part of maybe what you would be considering during those trials? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, you know, all of the things considered, if we've got two or three varieties that we're evaluating and, and they're quite similar, but the finish time is um, faster on one than the other, um, typically that's going to be the one that gets an, a better evaluation from my standpoint. Um, and yeah, absolutely. We, we've we compared the mangave to um, its one parent, the agave. And um, in pretty much all cases, they are just so much faster to finish, which um, may not matter to the end consumer or home gardener, but to our grower customers, it's really a big deal because a lot of them don't want to have to sit on an agave for, you know, say they're trying to sell a 10 or 12 inch plant. It may, it may take two years for uh, an agave to reach that size where you can get there a lot quicker with a mangave. Well, and I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating, right? Is that, you know, and I say this to people in the cut flower lane quite a bit, Laura, that sometimes, for a breeder, 
and for a grower like you at Walters Gardens, you're looking for some of the same things we are, right? Like you want a plant that's pretty vigorous, it keeps its shape pretty well, that is, you know, has less issues of disease and produces a lot of flowers. Yeah. Right? Like that's your your goal is very similar. You know, you mentioned Phlox paniculata earlier. It's like these are plants, you know, some of the amplifolia introductions, like you said, a little more mildewy, a little more issuey, sometimes a little too floppy. You know, there's those kinds of comparisons. So do you think that's always sort of known? Uh, you know, I guess is the question I'm getting to that like, yeah, I want the same thing. You know, Laura Robles, <laughs> you're sitting at Walter's Gardens trialing these plants. You're like, I want this to be a beautiful plant that's producing a lot of flowers just as soon as you do, even in a home garden setting. Right. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, um, I think we, we try our best to look at it from both both perspectives. And like you said, a lot of times they are going to be the same end criteria. Um of what we want from a production side and what the gardener wants from, you know, a garden performance side. Um, not always, but most of the time they're very similar. So yeah, the, the, I think the more we look at both sides of it, um, the more we can just assure that quality overall and that it has the traits that everybody's going to want. But yeah, a lot of times they do kind of overlap. Is there one of the groups that I wanted to touch on as we're going to pick back up in the Mangave as we wrap up here, but anemone in general, and this is something I've, I've shared with folks. A lot of the cut flower folks will do anemone that are corn production, you know, early spring anemone. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the, the later blooming anemones that are out there in the market really are, you know, much more floriferous overall. Mm -hmm. Is that a group of plants that you think is a little under the radar still for people? You know, I think for the, the independent garden center community, it can sometimes be a tough plant because it blooms a little later season. It's not a spring bloomer. Is that something that, you know, you guys sort of struggle with sometimes is trying to figure out like, okay, here's a plant. It's a really cool plant. A lot of people like it, but it's not a spring bloomer so how do we approach a plant like that maybe that people don't know as much maybe as they should yeah um and we have a, a great fairly recent example of that um a couple years ago we introduced a variety um called anemone fall in love sweetly and it's one of those fall blooming types um it's a great plant just super prolific flowers um kind of a, a semi-double flower um, they're held at like a nice height above the foliage where some of the older anemones just have this really wispy canopy of flowers that are kind of way up above the foliage. Um, and, and this one, they look more proportionate, I'd say. Um, again, it's, it's a variety that I really, really like, but yeah, there are, um, certain customers who just don't want to deal with a fall blooming plant. Um, we do work a lot with folks who, um, are willing to do so. I mean, there's ways to schedule it where you can force it into flower earlier. Um, if that's something that's a re requirement for selling, um, at their facility is that they're, you know, bringing something to the garden benches that is in flower. Um, and then the other thing that we've done a lot with, um, and this is a variety that's a, it's a proven winners variety. So proven winners has a great, um, initiative with something called plant this, get this. Um, where they do have like point of purchase marketing posters and banners and things like that that show 
you know, even if you're buying this green plant or this budded plant, um, and this is what it looks like in the container, we have photography showing what it will end up looking like in your yard in, you know, September and how beautiful it can be um, later in the year. So we do some of that as well, where even if it's not being sold in the garden centers in the fall or in the time when it uh, is at its prime in the garden, um, we try to do what we can to educate the consumers so they know, okay, if I buy this plant now in June, um, and it, it's just a green plant now, but this is what it's ultimately going to look like. Um, so yeah, I do think it's still something that, like you said, maybe some people, um, don't know about it or don't want to try it. But, um, I think the more that we do, the, the more we can educate people. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's a great initiative because the older varieties, you know, be they just, you know, straight species of something like the anemone or honorine Jobert, you know, there are a lot of foliage on those plants, people. Like sometimes when you see the earlier introductions, it's a beautiful flower, but like Laura mentioned, they float very above the foliage and there's a lot of leaves to flower count. You know what I'm saying, Laura? It's, one, yeah. <laughs> it's a plant that you look at and you go, okay, this is a pretty big plant for like, you know, three floaty stems over the top yeah. of it were some of the introductions like that you guys have made, you know, just the, the flower count is just off the charts compared to the older varieties. So you've got the mangaves, we're in production, we see that they're sizing up, they're on a good track on that. How do you call it a winner? I guess is the question I want to get to. Like, how do you know from your perspective, you say, yeah, absolutely. This specific cultivar definitely needs to like be out there in the market space? Um, well, from the standpoint of mangave, a lot of it is just, um, I mean, first and foremost, obviously, um, performance, but then just the uniqueness of coloration or texture. Um, a lot of the ones that we have brought to market either have um, like a large amount of speckling or have some neat variegation um, or some sort of neat, you know, pattern on the foliage. Um, just things like that that really make them stand out or the way the foliage um, is oriented. You know, some of them have really wavy foliage um, or, you know, foliage that makes them look like an avocado or, you know, just different stuff like that that's unique. Um, and so any of that is what is really going to, you know, lead us to say, okay, yeah, we need to try to introduce this one. Anything, this is the last question, Laura. Okay. Give, give us, there's got, I know for everybody, for everybody in the world of plants, especially in the role that you have, and you guys have a really great team there. Well, what's on the horizon? You don't have to give us names of cultivars or anything like that, but is there anything that like really excites you that you know you or the team there are working on in just sort of a general genus or species group? Um, yeah, so I think there's some exciting stuff coming down the pipeline in hibiscus, the hardy hibiscus. Um, so we have introduced a bunch of varieties already, but our team here is working on more that are um, that are really cool, um, some different colors and stuff like that. Um, so that, I guess, is one example. Um, another example I did, I think I mentioned it a little bit ago, that... Um, some of the work in disease resistance on the Fox paniculata that is coming up um, really soon here that we'll be introducing is really exciting. Um, and then overall, just I think the the breadth and width of different things that our breeding team here is looking at 
um, is just super exciting to me because some, some breeders focus, you know, is pretty limited, um, a few classes of what they're looking at, but hands and team here, um, really have a, a pretty wide scope. So, um, yeah, so I'm definitely keep an eye on what's coming up. Cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way state of mind But that's not not for me to Putting down this brand new hymn But they're just whispers way up here They got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my ears So for you to 